In a distant and second-hand set of dimensions, in an astral plane that was never meant to fly, the curling star mists waver and part. See, great Atuan the turtle comes, swimming slowly through the interstellar gulf, hydrogen frost on his ponderous limbs, his huge and ancient shell pocked with meteor craters. Through sea-sized eyes that are crusted with room and asteroid dust, he stares fixedly at the destination. In a brain bigger than a city, with geological slowness, he thinks only of the weight. Most of the weight is of course accounted for by Beryllia, Tubal, Great Tophon and Jerakeen, the four giant elephants upon whose broad and star-tanned shoulders the disk of the world rests, garlanded by the long waterfall at its vast circumference and domed by the baby blue vault of heaven. Astropsychology has been, as yet, unable to establish what they think about. Mackenzie, and that was the start of The Colour of Magic. Inspired in part by the success of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and a lot by his own Dungeons & Dragons campaign, previous stories, and a bunch of other authors' fantasy novels he wanted to poke fun at, Terry Pratchett's first Discworld novel was first published on the 24th of November 1983, the day after the 20th anniversary of Doctor Who, as it happens. That first edition was a hardcover run of around 500 from Colin Smythe, the publisher who had taken a punt on Terry's previous three books and became his literary agent. 1983 was the same year as Isaac Asimov's The Robots of Dawn and McCaffrey's Moretta, Dragon Lady of Pern, two different novels by Robert Jordan starring Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian and, perhaps most significantly, Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Mists of Avalon. And of course, 1983 was the year a lot of other books by authors not widely remembered 40 years later were also published. The Colour of Magic didn't make an immediate splash, though it would eventually. And as is usually the case, you can't put success down to any one thing. Yes, the speculative fiction fans who got hold of it were enthusiastic. Yes, Colin Smythe made a canny decision to get Pratchett out of his existing paperback contract and switch him to Corgi. And yes, the book being picked up for serialisation by BBC Radio's Women's Hour, six months later, brought it to the attention of an entirely new audience. Were those things enough? Who knows? The paperback was released more than a year later, in January 1985, with a new cover by Josh Kirby and accompanied by one interview for Space Voyager magazine, with a young journalist few people had ever heard of, named Neil Gaiman. The rest, as they say, is history. But then everything is history, after the fact. I'm not here to tell the story of The Colour of Magic, but rather to look at what it started. One of the longest and most beloved fantasy series of all time, which propelled its author to the tops of bestseller lists and into the hearts of readers all across the disc, uh, globe, sorry. 
Pratchett, while seemingly self-assured of his ability as a writer and the quality of his work, never took Discworld for granted. On Discworld's 21st anniversary in 2004, he wrote of a general state of amazement about his success that never left him, a slight feeling that it was happening to someone else. But he also acknowledged that it rumbles on this business when annotating those words a decade later. And here we are, 40 years after the publication of that first Discworld book, celebrating the Ruby anniversary, part of a worldwide community of fans, podcasters, obsessives, and, importantly, folks who just like reading the books and probably wouldn't consider themselves any of the other things in that list. But why? What is it about the Discworld novels that's made them so popular, so enduring? I thought it would be a nice way to mark the 40th anniversary to try and find out. Of course, it it won't be just one thing. There's no correct, objective answer. Art laughs at that sort of thing. But there are some themes that emerge when you ask folks to talk about the Discworld success, which is exactly what I've done. But before we get onto the Discworld as a whole, let's take a moment to consider the colour of magic. We discussed it on Pratchett five years ago, and then, as now, I felt that while it was certainly very different from what would come later, it still felt pretty assured. It had a voice, a style, a sense of humour, all things Terry would continue to develop and improve but that exist in no small measure in the colour of magic right at the start. Except it's not quite accurate to say that was the start, is it? Here are Jason and Rachel of the Better Than a Poke in the Eye newsletter, formerly known as Discworld Monthly. I think it was a long time in the planning. If you've read the new Stroke of the Pen, there's some very interesting ideas in those stories. So they weren't Discworld stories because it predated Discworld, but the ideas were very much Discworld. So there was locations that were Discworld-rated. Uh, in one of the stories, he talks about cutting his own throat, uh, making an offer, So, which obviously became Cobalt and Throat Dibbler. Um, it goes into the library where there's all the books writing themselves, all the biographies writing themselves, which later obviously got developed into a part of Discworld. So it might have only started it 40 years ago, but I think he was probably planning it 20 years before that. Yeah, all little bits of it, at least. No, because the quest of the keys, as soon as you start reading it's a wizard in Moorpork, it's like, yeah, you're talking about rinse wind sat in a broken drum. That's that's actually what you're talking about, Terry. He just hadn't bifurcated yeah. the city at that point. If you've read more than one Terry Pratchett book, then you've probably seen him trying stuff out. Variations of jokes and ideas crop up in short stories, well before they appear in novels. Characters return and develop over time into very different people, a gag in a footnote becomes the plot of an entire book. Now, it's not fair to call Strata a trial run for Discworld, but there aren't many authors who followed up a sci-fi novel about a flat planet with a fantasy novel set on a completely different flat planet. But while The Colour of Magic is the one that spawned 40 sequels, we have to acknowledge that years later, even Terry himself would advise readers not to start with that book. How could it be the wrong starting place for us, yet the right one for Discworld? Here's Mark Burrows, mono-award-winning author of the biography The Magic of Terry Pratchett and creator and star of the one-man stage show of the same name. I've been thinking about The Colour of Magic a lot lately, actually. I um, I revisited it. Do you know what? In a large part, it's not very good. (laughs) Like, there's a lot in The Colour of Magic that does not stand up. 
right? The fantasy references are so niche and specific that if you've not read certain 1970s and 60s bad fantasy novels and some good fantasy novels, then you're missing jokes. There are clunky jokes in it, like really clunky jokes in it. Terry has this gift as he goes on of never writing a joke that you don't get. You either get the jokes or you don't notice them, right? You don't get the reference, so you don't notice it's there. And that's genius. That's difficult to do. And Terry's brilliant at it. Um, this is very rare in a Discworld novel where you go, I don't get that. And it's because he hides the jokes really well. And you later you will learn something and you'll go back to it and go, oh, I, oh, you absolute bastard. <laughs> the Color of Magic doesn't do that. In fact, the Color of Magic has howling clunkers, like um, the reflected sound of underground spirits gag. It has to be spelled out, echonomics. It actually has to be spelled out later because it's not obvious. There's a thing about two flowers glasses and two flower having literally got four eyes because people in Angmorpork don't know what spectacles are. And that means some readers, for example, Josh Kirby, who did the cover art, drew two flower with four eyes because not everyone immediately goes four eyes, ha ha ha, four eyes, specky. You know, these are jokes that zoom over people's heads. Not everyone, but some people. And there's a lot of stuff like that. It's trying to upend and satirise fantasy tropes, but at the same time it can't help falling into the trap of those fantasy tropes. Like Liesa, the dragon fighter, who is wearing basically nothing. She's, you know, that's a classic pawny woman fantasy character, and it doesn't feel like a parody of that. It's just there. Or the various barbarian characters, you know, it sometimes feels like he's satirizing this stuff and sometimes he's just doing it like i think it's really interesting if you compare later discworld novels you know all of the characters in this are called things like liesa and hrun and you know most of the words aren't real words they're words terry has made up as a fantasy author uh, they're drinking walnut wine and things like that or a bit later the characters are called fred and susan and they're drinking winkle's old peculiar and bear huggers whiskey you know he hadn't found the reality of the world yet and how useful putting that reality in would be so there's a lot wrong with the color of magic and i know there's a lot of people gritting their teeth now and um presumably uh getting ready to fire off some missives on the platform that i will insist on calling twitter because the thing is the color of magic actually endures and it still works like there's a lot that doesn't work but as a whole, it still works. And as a Discworld novel, it basically still works. And the reason is the characters. If you've read any of Terry's earlier books, like Dark Side of the Sun Strata, like a lot of good ideas in those books. Some funny jokes, uh, lots of big science fiction cosmic ideas. But the characters don't really pop. They're fine, but they don't pop. The Color of Magic is the first time Terry writes characters that actually really work. And the reason the book works, even if you've never read H.P. Lovecraft and Anne McCaffrey, even if you don't know any of these references, the reason it works is because Rincewind and Two Flower work. And they still work. And those are really good pieces of character writing. It's the first time Terry writes a properly relatable character. Rincewind is essentially Terry. Rincewind is all of the 30-something Terry Pratchett's bafflement and frustration with bureaucracy and nonsense. And 
the fundamental unfairness of the universe. The cowardly stuff that we get with Rincewind later isn't quite as obvious here. He's more kind of real and cynical and um, fatalistic and uh, put upon. And that is Terry at the, at the time, I think. And, you know, he basically wrote himself. And that character is relatable. You understand him. You get him. Uh, you know where he's coming from. He's a wonderful character. Um, and he really sings. And Two Flower is the same, that sort of wide-eyed innocence and putting the two of them together, the cynic and the innocent, creates something. It creates a really good relationship. There's a really brilliant, warm relationship at the centre of that. Um, so for all of Terry getting bogged down with fantasy tropes and world building, God, he gets so obsessed with the world building in this in a way he never does any of the time. Like that footnote in the first few pages about the seasons on the disc and how long a disc year is, he completely forgets all that stuff within a few books. Like he doesn't care anymore. He realizes that it's not important. It's the least important part. The mechanics of the world are not as important as the people on the world. You know, he tells stories about people and stories about stories. The seeds of all that are here, and for that, it does still work. And I think by the time you get to the final crawl section, it's starting to feel more familiar. The rhythm is a bit more established. That last story feels way more of a piece with this world, and Rincewind is brilliant in it, and it really starts to work. So, yeah, I'm very fond of that book. It's an important book. I think it was the second Discworld novel I read, weirdly, um, when I was 12 years old. I've revisited it every couple of years since. It holds up. It's got problems, and I'm glad that the fundamental rule is don't start here. But I think it's quite special in its place of the time when Terry locks into his voice and starts to understand who he wants to write about. There are plenty of folks who agree with Mark's assessment. Not least Terry himself, who was not only critical of The Colour of Magic, but sometimes also of the younger man who wrote those earlier Discworld books. When fans tried to insist the rather less sophisticated patrician in Mort must be a different one to the much-beloved Lord Vetinari of the later books, Pratchett replied, How about, maybe he was Vetinari, but written by a more stupid writer? But is that true? Was The Colour of Magic still just practice, him finding his feet? Why stick with Discworld if the characters were right, but not much else? What did readers, and Pratchett himself, see in The Colour of Magic back in 1983, and why do so many of us insist on returning to it now? Here's Pratchett listener and poet Adam Ford. I'm completely aware that I am not in the majority of Discworld fans when I say my favourite character is Rincewind, and my favourite books are The Colour of Magic and Sorcery. I know that the early Discworld books are works of a neophyte author that often suffer from the shortcomings of the narrow worldview and limited cultural perspectives that exemplify most of the commercially published fantasy I could get my hands on in the 80s. I acknowledge that Terry got better as he grew as an author and a person, which is evidenced by the diversity of his passionate and dedicated fan base. As a nerdy, white, middle-class kid growing up in the 80s, I spent as much time as possible reading comics and sci-fi fantasy, playing Dungeons & Dragons, and learning Monty Python sketches and Hitchhiker's Guide scenes by heart. It's probably not a surprise that one of my D&D buddies eventually handed the colour of magic to me and said, you'll like this. Terry's way of writing was a real antidote to the seriousness of the fantasy we were all reading at the time. The stoic urgency of Gandalf, 
the grim violence of Conan, the nihilism of Thomas Covenant, the sheer Britishness of the Pevensies. When I read those books as a teenager, I was transported to worlds that felt dangerous and serious and important and grown-up and frightening. Worlds where I would have had no place. Worlds that would have swallowed me up and scratched me out of existence just like that. Goofy, unworldly people like me and my friends had no place in those worlds. Maybe that's why, when we created those kinds of worlds for ourselves, using the omnipresent Dungeons and Dragons rule books, we leavened those worlds with humour, jamming our love of jokes and gags into the game with spells called Python's Inconvenient Tonnage and tap-dancing giant emu chick familiars so they felt more accommodating, more human, more like places we would want to exist in places we could exist in, where a mistake or surprise could result in laughter and camaraderie instead of sudden death. When I came to sit down and read The Colour of Magic for the first time, what I found in those pages was the same thing we had been trying to inject into our D&D campaigns. Alongside the sense of adventure and urgency that comes from bar fights and dragons and quests and magic and eldritch gods, there were spit takes and puns and pratfalls creating a sense of fun, a sense of silliness, a sense of play that I had never encountered before in fantasy literature. And stumbling through it all, alongside the heroes and monsters and gods, was Rincewind, a hapless, failed wizard who never truly felt in control of anything. Now that's the kind of fantasy protagonist my teenage self could really identify with. It's not a stretch even now, all these decades later. So when I think of the colour of magic, that's what I think of, and what I'm grateful for. My first encounter with a new kind of fantasy that was gentle, welcoming, playful and fun, and an affirmation that my friends and I weren't the only people trying to combine our love of comedy and fantasy into a single way of telling stories. So even in the very beginning, the Discworld is a welcoming place. Not safe, not normal, whatever that means, but the kind of place we can imagine fitting in, at least metaphorically. If there's room for a wizard who can't cast spells, surely there's room for all of us. That's not to say he made a world that's truly universally welcoming, and Adam kind of touched on this. Discworld is the invention of a straight, white, working-class British man from the southwest of England. And while it escapes some of the boundaries you might expect from such origins, that influence is always there. You see it in which parts of the disc are treated as exotic, in the places where Pratchett's meticulous research gives way to what feel like tired stereotypes and assumptions, in the jokes levelled at certain kinds of people for their appearance and nature when it's something he rails against everywhere else. Those are things we've touched on in Pratchett, and I hope to revisit some of those issues another time. But for most Discworld readers, one of the cornerstones of its success is that it's comfortable. Reading a Discworld novel is like sitting in a favourite armchair. This is partly because the world feels familiar, but it's also the language. Pretty much anyone can read a Discworld novel. They're not highbrow, they're not difficult. Pratchett was constantly being sent letters about children who wouldn't read anything until they discovered Discworld. My own brother was one, but I never wrote to Pratchett about him. The books are loved by those who are not big fantasy nerds, and by those who are. Even in parts of that first book, Pratchett's characters speak plainly. His prose is clear and clever, with hardly any words you have to look up, and even the ones you do are deployed very strategically. 
Pratchett would later give writers the advice to steer clear of thee and thou and waxing wrath unless you are a genius and use adjectives as if they cost you a toenail. Advice that could have been directed at the author of the original version of The Carpet People, many of whose denizens speak like they're auditioning to be the next Gandalf or Aragorn. But the prose and the world of Discworld invite us in, like a friend asking us to join them down the pub or over a pot of tea, which might explain why there's something else pretty much every Pratchett fan agrees on. Here's Danny, also known as Molokov in the Pratchett listener question section, from the Australian Discworld Convention and the City of Small Gods fan club in Adelaide, South Australia. I've been reading Terry Pratchett's works for 31 years now, and my first one was The Colour of Magic, now 40 years old. I think that what makes Pratchett's prose so long-lived is a combination of good story, fun characters, and insightful social commentary. But above all of that is the humour. The main reason I read and reread and still reread Pratchett's books is that they make me laugh, and every time there's another layer to the jokes and themes that I didn't discover before. Yes, he can be quite poignant and insightful, and the books can go to dark places, But above all, they are just very, very funny. No other author can make me laugh out loud quite so much. Shared laughter is a big part of conventions like the Australian Discworld Convention, by the way. And that is coming up in July 2024. So head to ozdwcon.org for more info. There's a link in the episode notes. But this is at the core of the popularity of Discworld. It's a comedy. Plenty of books and stories have jokes in them, but... To be comedy, you have to cross a threshold where you nearly always make the audience laugh. In television terms, the threshold's been estimated by Australian comedian Tim Ferguson as around four jokes a minute. That's the difference between a drama with gags and a sitcom. And Terry Pratchett, like Douglas Adams, who inspired him, clearly hits the literary equivalent. Even his short stories have a huge joke-to-prose ratio. More than that, the Discworld books are constructed with a deep understanding of comedy. Gags are set up pages before they pay off. They come back just often enough for a laugh of recognition without getting stale. And jokes have layers of meaning within them, or are strung together in quick succession, often in the same sentence, while generally avoiding the hat-on-another-hat problem, trying to have two versions of a joke at once and spoiling the gag. But perhaps most importantly, with its groan-worthy puns, dad jokes, and, yes, stereotypes, some of which we would hope he wouldn't use now if he was still writing... Pratchett's comedy is broad. There are certainly plenty of jokes you don't spot the first time round, but most of them are ones most of the audience, even younger readers, will understand. That skill, pitching jokes anyone can get, is rare and coveted by stand-up comedians and comedy writers the world over. Here's listener Ian Banks with his take on the comic appeal of Discworld. Uh, I've been a Pratchett fan since I was about 15, which means that I'll be coming up to my own 40th anniversary in a couple of years or so. What drew me to the books was the fact that they were hilarious. I started reading quite a lot of fantasy by this point, and it was really hard to come across a comedy fantasy series that was A, funny, and B, proper fantasy as well. Pratchett managed to start with his stand-up comic of fantasy, The Colour of Magic, and create a world that felt quite real right from the offset. And he continued peopling it with real people and proper places all the way through, which makes it feel like a solid and real place. 
as to their appeal to other people and the success of the series over time, you can only really put that down to the fact that Pratchett is screamingly funny, incredibly talented as a writer, and manages to put together sentences in ways that can show you something new, even when you come to them for the 10th or 12th time. As Ian says, it's not just the jokes that expand your mind, it's the language, the places, the ideas. I said anyone, for a given value of anyone, can pick up the Discworld books and read and enjoy them, and I do think that's true. But there are so many references in Discworld to history, science, music, literature, mythology and modern culture, everything from King Kong to Tomb Raider, that while a lot of them will pass you by, you inevitably find at least one you recognise. And that recognition plants a seed that eventually makes a lot of fans ask, wait, if that was based on reality, what else is? Cue dozens of Reddit, Facebook and Twitter posts along the lines of, hey, did you know this was a real thing? I love those ones. Which brings me to our next guest, Aaron of the Complete Discography podcast. What does the Discworld mean to me? I think I can put it into three categories. Learning. I first encountered Terry's work when I was in my mid-teens and in a bit of an Anglophile phase thanks to Monty Python. I honestly hadn't read enough traditional sword and sandal fantasy by then to get what Terry was lampooning in Color of Magic and Light Fantastic, so I thought it was really original. All the books, though, have secret pockets and hidden gems of wisdom or jokes that come around 20 years later to smack you in the back of the head. Growing. During our three-and-a-half-year adventure through the complete discography, I was struck again and again by how powerful it was to watch Terry grow as a writer and thinker over nearly four decades. How he would take throwaway lines and spin them into entire stories, or question his own assumptions and broad statements again and again. Watching him decide over and over that every irredeemable group was, in fact, redeemable, if someone simply gave them the chance and the opportunity. But I realize that I, too, have grown since my first adventures with Rincewind. The books that I used to consider my absolute favorites have receded into the middle of the pack, and others that I just missed outright have come into prominence. Twenty-year-old Aaron would never have thought that a story about a nine-year-old witch would be the book that unfailingly makes him tear up. Sharing Something I think you probably hear about the Discworld fandom is that we love to share. I think that mainly stems from the fact that we all distinctly remember our first time reading Nightwatch, or Monstrous Regiment, or Thud, or Small Gods, and the thing inside us that shifted and grew and learned something important. Or whether it's just a recommendation to a new friend, or a whole entire podcast series, we want others to have that same experience. I get to do that in a particularly special way, passing the love of the Discworld and other works by Sir Terry on to my own kids. I think our family understands the world just a bit differently, having read Tiffany's stories together. The big wee hag, my eldest, has started in on his other books, and the not-so-big-as-big-wee-hag-hag has content to rampage around yelling crivens and theorizing about intelligent rats. So what does the Discworld mean to me? I think it means this. Tell me what your favorite Discworld book is, and why. We'd love you to tell us the answer to that, and to hear your takes on why you think the Discworld is still so popular after 40 years, because while I'm including a lot of reasons and ideas in this podcast, I know... I will not hit all of them. Use the hashtag PrattChatRuby on social media or send us an email, chat at PrattChatPodcast.com. But to pick up on that idea of sharing that Aaron was just talking about, here's Jason and Rachel, who also think it's a big part of Discworld's enduring popularity. 
young fans that were reading it back in the 80s are now middle-aged or older fans. They've got into relationships and, 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 and like Bernard, for example, Bernard Pearson ran the, the Discworld Emporium. Um, he got into it because uh, Isabel was reading it and um, it was keeping her up at night because she was sitting there reading the books at night, laughing her head off. And he's like, well, what's this? Because he was much more Anne McCaffrey or, or Tolkien. And suddenly there's this whole world of fantasy, comedy fantasy that opened up to him. And uh, yeah, I think it's osmosis. It gets into the psyche of, of the world and, and then, you know, word of mouth and, and... Word of mouth, I think, has a lot to do with it. My, my mum recommended Equal Rights to me, but equally my librarian was king in making sure I got all the rest when there was only nine books out. What makes someone want to pass something on and share it? Well, it has to resonate with them. It needs to be personal to mean something, I think. With Discworld, that comes partially from this recognition we keep coming back to. Ank Morpork especially feels familiar to a lot of us, whether we're equating it with London, New York, San Francisco, Paris, or <laughs> indeed Melbourne. How can one place feel like so many others? Well, it's partly because of the reality of what Pratchett was writing, but that's not the whole story. Take The Shades, for example. Here's Rachel and Jason again. There's a little town not far from where Terry lived, and it's got lanes exactly... It, the Mended Drum is the pub. It's now a tea rooms. That is the Mended Drum. The look of it, everything. It's that pub. And the cobbled streets. And the cobbled streets and the little lanes. And because we, we travel through these places all the time, and they're the same places that Terry drove through all the time you can see exactly what he was describing and where those influences came from and i think especially for and i'm gonna say it for all of us lot that live in the south of england and south of wales and travel through these places it becomes so natural to us you know to me dunster castle in Minehead is lanka 100 percent it's it's got all the looks it's the castle up on the hill with the village next to it you know and with the market in the middle of the town and it's a one it's a one street town it's, it's exactly as he describes or puts the image of Lanker in your head. And, and I think for a lot of British fans, especially that, that they see it, they, they, they go, yes, that's that. That's that. That's that. But no. And I think the beauty of his writing is he doesn't make it too rigid. He describes loosely what the place is like and allows you to fill in the gaps. So it always fits with your imagination because he's left enough room for your imagination yeah. to fill in the gaps and, it's like the forgeries that he talks about when uh, Moise van Lipwick is doing the um, forgeries. It's about getting the, the feel right rather than necessarily all the details. He gets the human psyche. It doesn't matter where you live or, or where you come from. The, the elder ladies of the village are the people that will deal with the births and the deaths and, and the illnesses. And they're the ones that will check in on, on the bloke down the road who's on his own after his wife died. Those kinds of things are universal no matter where you are. And I think that was something Terry was very, very good at picking up at. And, and I'm going to say using rather than, I was going to say exploiting, but using them in his stories to, to round out the people he was talking about. And that's universal no matter where you live. And he was a sponge. He, he yeah. absorbed everything. If you had a conversation with him, you knew he was listening to that conversation and he would pick up things in that conversation and possibly use those later on he would just listen to everything and, and, and believe everything and he was a good observer of life i think he enjoyed watching stuff and and listening to stuff and understanding it and then and i love the fact that he would one of the things i love in his stories is you're reading a sentence and you think oh i know where this is going and then there'll be a big u-turn at the end because you know 
Terry would just play with words and ideas and, and, and whatever you think you knew about him, you probably didn't. It's one of the things we often say is like, I would never second guess what Terry was thinking at any one point because I can guarantee you, you'll be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that is actually one of my real pet hates on social media. I'm a moderator for quite a few social media communities. And when people go, I think Terry would have, and I was like, nope, I'm not approving that post <laughs> because you're wrong. You're wrong. Doesn't matter what you're saying. You think you know what Terry would think. Nah, don't work. <laughs> I can guarantee you that he would have his own take on it and whatever you think, it's not going to be right. There's a sense in which Terry is absent from Discworld. Of course, he poured a lot of himself into the books, his interest, his sense of humour, his sharp journalistic observations of life. But he also made sure not to put too much of himself in there or into his public author persona. He was, for a public figure, astonishingly private, and as Jason and Rachel put it, we just don't know what he really thought about a lot of things. Instead, he articulates human feelings and experiences that feel universal to us. The frustration of being ignored or overlooked, of not fitting in, of being judged based on others' assumptions about you rather than who you truly are. But most of all, the rage we all feel at injustice. Neil Gaiman highlighted that anger as a central theme of Terry's work and life in A Slip of the Keyboard, and it's expressed throughout the Discworld. Most obviously, it's expressed by Granny, Vimes and Tiffany, but also by so many other characters and the authorial voice right from the beginning. Rincewind rails against the ridiculousness of his fantasy universe. Granny and Esk refuse to be told no by the crusty old men of Unseen University. Mort stands up to death himself to demand he be called by his actual name. But Pratchett is canny enough to be the literary equivalent of the friend who knows when we want to be heard and validated in our anger, but not offered solutions. We feel seen, and we see ourselves in his characters, but the Discworld doesn't pretend to know how to fix our actual problems. It raises the big issues, but the plot is generally about something else. We can all quote the Sir Samuel Vimes boots theory of socioeconomic unfairness, but when Vimes becomes part of the upper class and can afford those $50 boots, he's still a copper solving crimes. He's not working to understand and unravel the systems or conditions that created it. That wouldn't make for a great fantasy adventure novel, of course, and unlike Bruce Wayne and Batman, who cop this criticism as well, he doesn't live in a city that's meant to reflect our modern world. Not so directly, anyway. The upshot of this approach is that everyone can feel seen and validated, but without having their worldview shaken. The default position of Discworld is, things aren't great, but they could be much worse. It's another place where Terry provides gaps for the reader to fill in themselves, and allow more room for gags. This way, he gets to make jokes about royalty being outdated and useless, but also about democracy not working because people are stupid. And look, I have a lot more thoughts about this. Let's not forget that benign authoritarianism is the main functional government on the disc, but that's a discussion for another time. This sort of thing is part of the broader power of fantasy as analogy. When a Discworld character faces prejudice because they don't fulfil the role of dwarf or hero or monster expected of them, we can translate that any way we like into the real world. It makes the Discworld feel personal and on our side, even to people we disagree with. But undeniably, outside of some significant blind spots, 
Discworld feels progressive. And it's certainly pushed some folks, including at least one listener of this podcast, to the left. So how does that work? Pratchett's own Elizabeth Flux might have an answer. I think a lot of it is because a lot of the attitudes are ahead of their time. Like the things that were being written contemporaneously were not necessarily thinking from the same viewpoint. So that contributes to longevity. But there's also the fact that you can feel the joy and the good intent coming through in the writing. And that also is something that never ages. With a few important exceptions, Pratchett does indeed always feel like he truly cares about what he's writing about. And while there are aspects of the disc that never age, that good intent manifests also in changes of heart and mind along the way. Discworld changes, Terry wrote in 2014, but it changes in its own way. Many of the books push the world in new directions. Terry famously didn't ever draw a map of the Discworld and then decide where stories would be set. He believed the proper way to do it was the other way around, to let the stories decide the shape of the world. And that didn't just apply to geography or population. It grew in terms of worldview. Here's Francine Carroll and Joanna Hagen of the podcast The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret. You've got some real world themes, but they're kind of mainly like eternal themes. And they are set in a a world that doesn't age. There are some references that are out of date, but the thing is with Terry Pratchett references, if you don't get them, you don't get them. It's fine. It's very seldom you come across a reference and go, oh, I didn't get that, unless you're like us weirdos who go combing through every page for them. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I think it's similar to how like Charlie Brooker put together Black Mirror to look timeless kind of thing. I don't think Discworld will age because it's an ageless world and evergreen themes. Okay. There's something so stunning about the writing. Like so much of it is that they have so much longevity because they are just incredibly good books. But I think what's incredible is how much they grow. It's a it's a 41 book series and it starts as a sword and sorcery parallel that a lot of people tell you not to start with. And it becomes this huge sprawling mess of all the beautiful and awful things about humanity. And I don't think anything else quite covers the gamut in the same way and is willing to evolve and change mm. while being ageless. And you can get it like a sample of it just from the fact that if you've been reading the books for 15 years, uh, it means something very different the first time you read it to the last time you've read it. You don't need to grow up with the books to grow up with the books. But maybe of Discworld's strengths, the biggest is that they're just great stories. Pratchett spent years honing and deepening his understanding of how stories and genre work. Not just fantasy genres either, which he freely combines with a variety of others, from Shakespearean tragedy to boarding school fiction and Hollywood monster movies. He certainly likes to push the boundaries of established fantasy tropes, subverting them directly and indirectly. He asks, in increasingly sophisticated ways, what it means for fairy tales to always end with a wedding, for the heroes to win by killing the villain, whether the monster is really a monster at all. And it's surprisingly early in the Discworld, that there appear stories about stories. So, let's see. The Discworld is evergreen in its themes, but grew broader and was ahead of its time compared to other fantasy stories. It makes you feel seen in the frustrations of life, in part because Terry drew on reality for inspiration, but not too much, so there are blanks for you to fill in for yourself. It feels like something special we want to share and pass on to others. It pushes us to learn and grow, just as Terry did in writing it, 
but in a way that doesn't make us feel stupid for missing something. It makes us feel welcome. It's a fun, cosy, home away from home. And no one else has ever managed to combine fantasy and comedy so successfully. I told you it wouldn't be just one thing. Of course, not everyone who picks up a Discworld novel becomes a fan, but I suspect if you're listening to this, then you did. For us, after that first one, it's turtles all the way down, no matter whether your first was The Colour of Magic, or the more often recommended books like Mort, Weird Sisters, Guards, Guards, or Going Postal. Or even something that, at first, seems a really weird choice, like The Fifth Elephant or I Shall Wear Midnight. No matter whether you have half a dozen battered paperbacks on a shelf you come back to every couple of years, or if you run a huge fan convention on a similar schedule, or any level of love for the disc in between, I can't help feeling that when you read that first Discworld novel, you too felt the world that lay beyond. You felt, in fact, a little like a certain wizard at the end of The Colour of Magic. Below, the whole universe twinkled at Rincewind. There was Greater Tuan, huge and ponderous and pocked with craters. There was the little disc moon. There was a distant gleam that could only be the potent voyager, and there were all the stars, looking remarkably like powdered diamonds spilled on black velvet, the stars that lured and ultimately called the boldest towards them. The whole of creation was waiting for Rincewind to drop in. He did so. There didn't seem to be any alternative. Happy birthday, Discworld. And thank you, Terry Pratchett. Thanks also to all of the guest contributors to this episode. Rachel and Jason of Better Than a Poke in the Eye, Mark Burrows, Adam Ford, Danny from the Australian Discworld Convention, Ian Banks, Aaron Olson of The Complete Discography, fellow Pratchatter Elizabeth Flux, and Francine Carroll and Joanna Hagen of The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret. You've been listening to a special episode of Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Ben McKenzie. That's me. Pratchat is produced and edited by me on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. Our music is by David Ashton. We're on social media as Pratchat or Pratchat Podcast, and you can listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag PratchatRuby. And Liz, I'm sorry about the Cosmic Turtle intro. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendorChaps.com.